he wanted to see who Jesus was. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you may be seated. O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things in thy law. This is probably one of the most famous passages or stories in the book of Luke. It's one that if you went to Sunday school as a kid growing up, you would have known this story. But there's something really interesting happening here that, that is beyond the uh, Sunday school reading that we tend to have. In chapter 18, we have the beginning of a story in Jericho. There's actually two stories that start in Jericho. There's blind Bartimaeus, and then we have seeing Zacchaeus. Both are actually wanting to see Jesus for who he is. About a week or so ago, I picked my daughter, my youngest daughter up from daycare, and on the way home, we decided to stop by this new franchise that had opened near house, Crumble Cookies. Now, Crumble Cookies has this amazing kitchen where you could see them preparing all the cookies, and my two and three quarters daughter was running up to the counter, pulling up onto the, onto the countertop, then over the glass that was protecting uh, so the, the protecting the, the, um, the customers from the, the food and the food from the customers so there's not any contamination. And she's trying to climb over that glass because she just had to see those beautiful cookies being made, those banana minion cookies, those uh, nerd Willy Wonka sugar cookies, or those gooey, chocolatey Tootsie Roll cookies. She just had to see the magic happening behind the counter in the kitchen. Zacchaeus is not too different from that. He wanted to see who Jesus was, if you look in verse 3. Luke and Jesus want to get us to get at least three things out of this passage. But the three things that we can get today are climb the tree, forget about the crowd, and take him home climb the tree. Zacchaeus was willing to do anything to see Jesus. It says in our story that he was a, a man of, of small stature. Um, so he couldn't see, he couldn't make his way through the crowd, so he was willing to do anything. He was even going to go and say, give me a boost, or, or, or climb a tree, or do anything. Now, in our modern day and age, that doesn't mean much to us with this climbing of a tree. But you see, in the uh, ancient Near East, uh, grown men didn't run because they wore uh, these uh, tunics, and the tunics uh, were a bit more like uh, our Scottish kilts, if you will. So if you ran, um, it wasn't that you were gonna go see something, someone might see something they didn't want to see. And the whole point of climbing a tree was that if you climb the tree, it was even more probable that others would see things they wanted to unsee. But he didn't care. He wanted to see who Jesus was. That's what we see in verse 3. But the next thing that we see, it says, but being of short stature, he could not see because of the crowd, which takes us to our second point. Forget about the crowd. Now, uh, last week I, I, I had an interview for, for Rector at a church, and so I went and got a haircut. 
and I got a little shave because I, I'm, I'm worried about what the crowd will think. What are they going to think about me? What are they going to, how are they going to perceive me? What are first impressions like? Zacchaeus didn't care what the crowd thought. And it wasn't just because he didn't care about, oh, am I shaven or unshaven? Do I have a good haircut or not? No, Zacchaeus's reason for not caring about the crowd is very different. It says he was a man of short stature, but that's actually a play on words. Luke is being very clever here. You see, it tells us here that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That word is used nowhere else in the New Testament. He was an arch IRS agent. He wasn't just an IRS agent, he was an arch IRS agent. But you see, you guys snicker when you hear the word IRS agent, but a tax collector back then wasn't just an IRS agent. He was actually viewed as a Roman collaborator. The Romans needed people who spoke the local language, knew the local customs, and could help bring in taxes. You see, if you've ever been to Europe and you've seen the beautiful Roman architecture or even aqueducts, and it wasn't until the 1960s that Rome stopped getting its water from the aqueduct or Segovia in Spain was still receiving its water until the 1960s. Their taxes went a long way, longer than yours and mine did. But these tax collectors, the Romans needed them, but the in order to kind of sweeten the deal for these collaborators, they said, we don't care what you do on top of that. If you want to skim a little bit of cream off the top for yourself, we'll look the other way. In fact, we will be your enforcers. We Roman soldiers will make sure that we get our cut and you can also take your cut and we'll just turn a blind eye. So not only were tax collectors uh, collaborators with the Romans, they were also thieves. And that's how they were perceived by the majority of the people. Zacchaeus didn't care. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, and he wasn't going to let his sin keep him away from Jesus. He wasn't going to let what people perceived about his sin keep him away from Jesus. Forget about the crowd. But the third thing that we learn from this passage is this, take Jesus home. I remember reading this article in the Telegraph a couple years ago, and it said, uh, things that Brits say and how Americans hear them. And um, I remember living over in England, and uh, people would say to me, oh, you must come for dinner. Now, as an American, you're thinking, they're so hospitable, they want to have me over for dinner. When actually what they mean by you must come for dinner is, I'm just being polite, and I have no intention of ever inviting you over to my house. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. Jesus is not just being polite. I have to. It is necessary. The, the word there can be translated as must, it can be translated as necessary. There is no other way. Unless I come to your house, there is no other way to fix the problems that you have in your life, Zacchaeus. I need to be made part of the warp and weave, the fiber of your life. Take me home, Jesus says. If you ever go to St. Paul's Cathedral, or if you go to Keeble College, uh, which is just next to the, the seminary that I studied in, um, you'll see 
this amazing painting by the pre-Raphaelite painter Holman Hunt. It's called The Light of the World. And when Holman Hunt painted it, um, it's, it's this beautiful picture of Jesus with his crown and this light beaming from his head. It's, it's about dusk. He's standing before a doorway, and the doorway is overgrown with, with, um, with weeds, with vines, and, and, and he's knocking at the door. It's the story, uh, the, the picture that we get in Revelations chapter 3, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone should open to me, I will, oh, I will come in and sup with them. I will dine with them. And when Holman Hunt painted that, uh, an art critic saw this, this art piece and said, excuse me, Mr. Hunt, but I believe you forgot to paint a door handle on the outside of your door. And Holman Hunt replied, uh, no, I didn't forget. It's intentional. The door handle is on the inside. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. You see, it tells us that, that, that Zacchaeus had run to a sycamore tree, and the sycamore tree had these big uh, leaves that would hide you from the sight of everyone. You could still see Jesus. You could still remain anonymous. Um, but Jesus sees Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must I must go to your house. And this isn't a sort of fast food American pace of life. It's, it's that Mediterranean style of eating where, for example, when I grew up as a kid, we would start lunch at two and we would be done at four. Or we'd start dinner at eight and be done at 10. Because the point, it's not just to eat something that will feed your body, but the meal is to feed your soul also. Jesus doesn't just want to visit or pass through like it says at the beginning of the passage. He wants to make his residence with Zacchaeus. He wants to make his residence with you and I. That invitation that Jesus says, please let me in, radically transforms Zacchaeus' way of looking at the world. He wanted to see Jesus. And in having Jesus come into his house, it changes the way he sees everything. And in that experience of grace, he then becomes a gracious person. You see, Zacchaeus comes down a tree, but the poet George Herbert put it this way in his poem called The Sacrifice, the Anglican priest George Herbert. He says, Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me. You see, Zacchaeus came down from a tree, but Jesus climbed the ultimate tree to pay the ultimate price to rescue us. And that is the radical grace and generosity that Zacchaeus encounters and that transforms him and gives him a new way to see it's not just bar blind Bartimaeus that gets physical eyesight bad. It's Zacchaeus who gets spiritual eyesight. And that spiritual eyesight changes the way he even views, yes, money. John Wesley said that it is often our wallets that are the last to be converted. We may be emotionally moved or spiritually moved, but rarely or until the very end, are we even financially moved to follow Jesus? 
But I don't think um, Zacchaeus is doing that British, oh, you must come to dinner, when he says, if I've ever defrauded anyone, I'm going to give four times. I mean, that's exorbitant. It's, it's preposterous. It's too much, you might say. But you see, Zacchaeus doesn't see his loss at, or someone else's gain as his loss. He's doing very much like Francis Bacon said when he says, money is like manure, of very little use except for if it's spread. And I would add, generously. The four things that Scripture tells us about how we can break uh, the hold of money on our hearts. And, and money had, had promised Zacchaeus, if you get me, you will have social standing. If you get me, you will be loved. If you get me, you will have friends. If you get me, you will be popular. If you have me, you'll have security. If you get me, you will have safety. And money was not able to grant him anything of that. He was excluded from society. But when he encounters grace, he encounters this radical welcome. And what does this grace do? It does four things to the way that he views his money. First, it's sacrificial. I'm, I might have taken a little cream off the top, but I'm going to give four times what I stole. It's sacrificial. And you even see this when St. Paul talks about wealth and money. He says, in, and he makes it, he's making an appeal. 2 Corinthians is actually a, a letter of appeal where he's trying to do a fundraiser, believe that or not. And Paul says this, he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9, but you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor that you might become rich. You see, Jesus didn't tithe his blood on the cross. He gave it all. He gave it all. It's sacrificial. It cost him something. So what we do in our response is that we give sacrificially. That's one of the four principles for, for biblical giving. It's sacrificial. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean it, that you should give 100%. But what I do think it does is it should be something that, that, that cramps your lifestyle just a little bit. If, say, you were going to go eat out four times a month, maybe I'll eat out three times. And I will sacrificially take that difference and put it towards building God's kingdom and giving generously. Sacrificial. Two, it is proportional. I will give a proportion of my income. That's what Zacchaeus is doing. That's what we do as Christians. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, when you come together on the first day of the week, set some money aside and offer that to the Lord. It says set some money aside. There's always a proportion. Your giving should be proportional. You should always give something. And for some, it might be a lot. And for some, it might be a little. For some, you may only be able to afford a, a widow's might. But if you think about that, when Jesus saw the widow giving, he said she has given way more than the wealthiest ever given here at the temple. The third thing is that it should be habitual. It should be something that, it, it's become a habit. It's, it's something that is very, that, that's become part of the fiber of your being. Just like Jesus has come home to live with you, it's become part of Zacchaeus' culture. It has become part of your culture. There is a letter that Justin the Apostate, the, 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 the Roman emperor writes, and he says, these impious Galileans, 
They will share their bed with few, but their table with many. And he was complaining about that. But the whole point is that what he was saying is, we don't live in a culture of generosity in Rome. These Christians live in a culture of generosity. They are generous. And, and I ask you, what, what kind of neighborhood would you like to live in? One in which we are very generous with our beds and stingy with our table. Or would you want to live in a culture where we are stingy? And I mean that, where we're reserved, where we're, where we're guarded with our beds. But very, very, very generous with our table. Everyone can come. Everyone can experience the grace that I experienced. The most famous verse in the Bible is actually about giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It becomes part of your culture, a culture of generosity. And we at this cathedral have a culture of generosity. We give to those who are in, in, in greater need than us. That's why we, we give to the, the Coalition for the Homeless. That's why we give to the Christian Service Center. That is why we give to missions in Honduras. That's why we give, that's why we pray for missionaries in our prayers of the people. We have a habit and it's, it, it, we want to cultivate and we want that to grow. We want to grow that culture. The fourth and last thing about giving is that it's joyful. It says that he glad that Zacchaeus did this gladly. He did this with joy. He didn't do it out of guilt. He did it out of gratitude. There's a very difference between grace and guilt. Guilt says, we're not going to make our budget figures. And grace says, how can I conspire to give away as much as I can? John Wesley once is reported to have said, make as much as you can, give away as much as you can, and save as much as you can. I mean, what if we dreamed and said, we are going to endow a children's worker position here at the cathedral for a full-time children's worker for three years? And you did the math on that. What if you did that? What if we as a church family said, we want to endow a full-time pastoral care worker that can do all the hospital visits, that can, that can take care of the poor and the needy and the sick and the vulnerable among us? What an amazing view of generosity. What a culture we could have if we just dreamed that way. You see, guilt is reactive. The plate passes you down and you say, oh, ugh. Oh, they're looking. Let me throw some in. Grace is the opposite. Grace is, and guess what? On, we call this the 21st Sunday of, uh, of after Pentecost. On the other side of the pond, they call it the fourth Sunday before Advent. Because what's going to happen once Advent hits? You're going to start seeing a Christmas story on TV, but you're also going to see a Christmas carol on TV. And in the story of the Christmas carol, Ebenezer Scrooge encounters the ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. And he sees that his life of stinginess, of self-centeredness, is robbing him of his future. And then when he's given a new lease on life, and he sees that judgment has been passed, and that he's not a recipient of judgment, but a recipient of grace, he conspires to give as much as he can away to Tiny Tim. He, he tries to, he gives money to the poorhouse when, when they come to make a collection. He is proactive, not reactive. 
God wants to give us a new way to see, to create in us a culture of generosity. Hymn 474, which was written by Isaac Watts, tells us this. And there's many ways of being proactive. You can plan out your giving. You can fill out your giving estimate. You can give online. But here it, it, it comes the theology from it, and it's put in a poetic way that I just love. It's when I survey, and it's a verse 4. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.